0: Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 2, and we'll read the same text we read last Sunday. Also, we'll be reading Mark chapter number 6, verse number 3. Again, this uh, Sunday morning, we're interested in the silent years of Christ's life. They are included in the verses, in all the verses that we read. say more about that in just a moment. We're going to move on a little farther from where we were. Last week. Luke chapter 2, as you find verse 40, if you can and will, would you stand with us, please? We'll honor the Word of God by standing together for the reading of our text this morning. The silent years of Christ. I'm interested this morning in Christ's life in Nazareth. Christ's life in Nazareth. Luke 2, beginning in verse number 40. The Bible says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said unto him, Son, Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God And man. I'll read one more verse in Mark six, verse number three, where the Bible says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Thank you for standing. Again, we're still in the silent years of Christ, and I'm interested this morning in the life of Christ in Nazareth. Um just very brief mention of two or three things. This is the thirteenth time we've looked into the life of Christ. We looked seven times at different events, circumstances leading into the birth of Christ. Then the visit by the shepherds. There were four messages concerning the scenes beyond the nativity. Scenes from the early life of Christ. And then these silent years of Christ's life. This will be the second. I trust there will only be one more message that we'll uh, try to bring from the silent years of the life of Christ. Uh, There are four four, uh, different events or movements concerning these silent years in the text we just read. We dealt with last Sunday, and I'm going to pick up just a little bit there this morning. We dealt with last Sunday, Jesus the child from verse number 40. Of course, there is Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple when he's left behind by Joseph and Mary. Then eventually they're going to come back and find him, and there he is in the temple at the age of 12. Luke 2, verse 41 through 51. There's Jesus, the young man. We'll cover that, Lord willing, this morning, verse number 52. Then there's Jesus, the carpenter. Um, Mark chapter 6 and verse number 3 mentions that he himself was a carpenter. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to see something he built? Amanda and I went to an estate sale back many months ago, and, and the gentleman of the family, the man of the family, was the last survivor. His wife had already slipped into eternity, and, and so we went to the estate sale, and uh, he was a craftsman. And he had built little ships and cars and homes and farmhouses and barns and carved all of that. And it was magnificent to see... I can't imagine uh, Jesus being perfect, making anything that was not perfect. Can you? I would have loved to have seen what he crafted and what he built uh, with his hands. But last week, as we considered Luke 2 in verse number 40, you remember we talked about uh, the physical development of Christ. Luke uses the word grew. It's a word that just speaks simply of what we just mentioned, the physical development of a child. All they have to do is receive nourishment. It happens naturally. It's something that happens naturally. We talked about the strengthening of the spirit of Christ. The Bible says he waxed strong in spirit verse number 40. And then Jesus grew in wisdom. The Bible says he was filled with wisdom, verse number 40 of Luke 2. And then the Bible says in verse number 40, and the grace of God was upon him. During these years of growth, the grace of God. Remember, we liken that into the hand of God, the favor of God. The touch of God was upon him. Jesus is the only child that's ever been born in this world sinless. You say, but what about Adam? When Adam was born, uh, when Adam was created, excuse me, he wasn't born, but he was made a full, fully matured man. So it was with Eve. So Jesus is the only child that's ever been born sinless. And, and the Bible says about him that the hand of God certainly was upon him, the grace of God was upon him. As a matter of fact, I was thinking... Uh, This morning I thought about those verses in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1, 2, and 3 where the Bible says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And so, so it is with Jesus as a child. We concluded our thoughts last week. I won't give you all of them, just two or three of them. Here, verse number 40 says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus partook of everything in the experience, of, of human experience, uh, the only exception being that to sin, that of sin. He was without sin, and you know that. Of course, we, we concluded our thoughts last week. It was kind of birthed out of our prayer room last Sunday morning. Jeff Shuttles was talking about and Hunter Williamson were talking about how that they were thankful that not only we as adults are able to approach Christ in prayer and him be able to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but, but so it is with a child who knows Christ. Isn't that interesting how that a 9-year-old, a 10-year-old can bring their needs to Christ? As a matter of fact, there was an occasion where the disciples tried to forbid children from getting to Christ. He said, no, you're out of line. He said, forbid not the children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so they are precious in his sight. These children are, and uh, and we're grateful that they can approach the throne of the Lord. They ought to be taught so, even at their mother's knee, that there is a God in heaven who cares for your soul. And he cares for the burdens that you carry. And still, even uh, those old songs that we seem to have lost in the Baptist church. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Um, Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. He's got the whole world in his hands. If you have to start with, uh, now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep start there, but move them from there. And teach them that if it matters, if if it is of concern to their soul, that weighs heavy upon them, um, to take it to the Lord, take it to the master in prayer. I have had children come to me uh, through the years and ask, would you pray for my daddy? Would you pray for my mother? Uh, Amanda and I uh, listened to a child uh, three or four years back that made the statement, I I don't understand my own life. My, My life is not good. A little five, six-year-old boy. And I'm glad that there's someone who they can take their burdens to. Not just grandmother and granddaddy can pray. And mom and dad can pray. But junior and sis can pray as well. Aren't you grateful for that? Today in this message, I want to cover Jesus' life in Nazareth. That part will probably be somewhat informative. What was Nazareth? What was it like in Christ's day as a Jewish a young man or a boy to grow up in Nazareth as a Jewish male. In verse number 52 of Luke chapter number 2, Jesus as a young man. And then in Mark chapter 6 in verse number 3, Jesus the carpenter. These silent years. Next week, the Lord willing, we'll, we'll examine the experience at the age of 12 at the temple. I started to go there this morning, but I want to w- w- look at it and work on it just a little bit more. Uh, if, if I may, uh, sometimes in, in speaking before somebody or uh, teaching a class or even in open assembly or uh, whatever it may be, uh, sometimes the, 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 the challenge is to know what to leave out, right? If you're an editor uh, for a paper or publication, that's the challenge. You can get, gather all the information, you can gather in abundance, but knowing what to trim off, and that's where I'm at on this experience of Christ at the age of 12 in the temple Let me me call your attention back to something, then we're going to get right to this. We'll move through it, I'm sure, rapidly. Look with me at verse 40 and verse number 52. Let me remind you of something here. Of course, verse number 40 comes before the recorded experience of Christ at the temple at the age of 12. Verse number 52, afterwards. In verse number 40, when the Bible says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This verse carries... Uh, It covers the years from about age 2 when Herod would have died. And Joseph would have brought his family out of Egypt back to Nazareth from about age 2 to age 12, the temple experience. So that's 10 years. Verse number 52, the Bible says now after the recording of this temple experience at 12, verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And this covers some 18 years from age 12 Uh, to age 30. So we believe that there are 28 what's referred to as silent years in the life of Christ. 28 silent years. In other words, there's more that's not recorded about the early life of Christ than is recorded. Now, we'll go back through it, but you remember we said last week there's some things we don't know about the early years of Christ's life, but there are some things we do know. We do know that a lot of this whimsical stuff that's been recorded and this mystical stuff that's been recorded about him, we just refuse it. Because if it contradicts the Bible, we refuse it, wholeheartedly refuse it. I want us to examine just a little bit, if if we may, the, the norm of life in and around Nazareth, the little city of Nazareth, during the time of Christ. What was it like? Verse number 40 says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then as we've read verse number 52, both verses cover his life, all those years in Nazareth. The town of Nazareth was located, if you've ever seen a map of Israel, Nazareth is loaded, uh, located excuse me, in the northern part, in the Galilean area of Israel. Judea was located in the south. Uh, we've, we've got one of our ladies that's uh, that, uh, going to try to go to the Holy Land next year. And, and I'm anxious for her to come back and, and tell what she's able to see. It's very interesting. In the northern half of Israel, that's where Christ, that's where he grew up, and that's where his ministry was concentrated. The forerunner, John the Baptist, was in the Judean hills and wilderness in the south. In the north part of Israel, it's green. The grass is, is lush and green. The flowers bloom. It's, uh, it's very picturesque. But in the south part... Of Israel, it's not. It's dry. It's hot. It's arid. It's barren. It's what's referred to as the wilderness of Israel. We think of a wilderness as a thicket here in northeast Mississippi, right? But there, it's a desert. There's nothing there. John grew up in the desert. You remember when Mary went and visited Elizabeth, went to the hills of Judea? She went to the desert area where Elizabeth, her cousin, cousin lived, that is caring and going to give birth to the forerunner, John uh, the Baptist, But it was located in the northern part. That's where Christ's ministry, that's where his life is. That's where he would live his life out, and that's where his ministry is concentrated, whereas John was to the south. There's a difference. The more you read about uh, the customs and area of the day, there's there's a marked difference, evidently, because everyone writes of it, a difference in the disposition uh, of people from the northern part in Christ's day of Israel and the southern part. It's kind of like it is here in the South. You can go up north and you can't find sweet tea. God help their soul. Amen. But, you know, they say things different. They do things different. There are places which are, uh, that they habitually frequent that maybe we don't in the South. I have been to places out of state and somebody would say, hey, y'all got uh, catfish in Mississippi. Let me take you to the best place in Lenore, for example. The Trantham's took us a few years back. And I am sitting there thinking this is okay. But I'd like to take you to a hole in the wall down in Pontotoc County and let you know what eating the delicacy of southern catfish is all about. I've had a number of occasions where people wanted to take me for something. Then I think uh, here in the South, I said something to Miss Barbara Dagenhart while preaching out there about four years ago in their revival, their fall revival, about the way she says God, everybody in North Carolina says it different. And come to find out at the close of the service, a good handful of people come by and said, what's wrong with how she says God? And I thought every one of y'all came to Dana Williams. Y'all all all say it the same. But they say it differently, don't they? If you've ever been to North Carolina, they just pronounce it differently. To the north, there were very few priests that were located in the northern part, the Galilean area of, of Israel. To the south, there were a number of priests that would that would travel and, and teach in the such line. In the northern part, those that didn't have that many priests that that loved God and lived for God, they were said to be pure in spirit and in mind. Their intent and their heart was well-meaning. It, it puts you in the idea of, uh, you remember it's not been that many decades ago, you could leave your window raised at night when the nights were cool. Or, or you could walk out your front door headed to see a relative or going to Uh, the supermarket or whatever it would be, and not only leave your front door unlocked, but maybe leave it open. How many of y'all remember days like that? You had an old screen door on the front. You just walk out and leave it. Get in the car, the truck, and go wherever you felt like you needed to go. That's the idea of the mindset during Christ's day uh, there to the northern part of Israel. People were noble in heart, but down in the southern part, and John, John the Baptist had to contend with some of this. They were more ceremonial and ritualistic. They were very rigid and harsh. They felt like you were to cut things close and mind, to, um, uh, mind very close to uh, the teachings that their forefathers had given to them. It's interesting, if you were to study culture back in the day, as far as the home Christ grew up in, it was about like how homes are in Nazareth to this day. They're square, they're not very large, have a flat roof. Um, they would have a staircase on the outside that led up to uh, led up to the roof at the end of the day. It was cooler up there than it was in the home, and so the family would go up and visit rehearse the day, and uh, a lot of families would w- visit from one housetop to the other they would speak across and and that was just life for people growing up in in Nazareth back in christ 's day as a matter of fact, the only time you went inside the house was to sleep to dress to cook and to escape uh, inclement weather. Here's what we know about Jesus Christ, his home, and his family. We know he was a part of a family of at least nine. Can you imagine being living in a home not much bigger than our foyer with nine people there? Can you imagine that? I, I, I'm going to dress it up a little bit. Uh, Harry and his bunch, you know, there were 17 of them. And Mike, uh, Harry loved Jink Parrish. He loved him. He'd help him kill hogs every year, but he loved him. You know, Jink was... Shell shocked, and he went over there when a bunch of them boys. There wasn't but two bedrooms, and then there was the back porch. And it wouldn't have been unusual for one of them to sleep on the back porch to keep from burning up. But uh, Mr. Jink said one, one Saturday morning he went to Ted uh, went to Ted's and said he looked back there where the boys were sleeping. Said there were six boys turned sideways. He said I saw six naked bottoms turned sideways, and nothing but a sheet over over the mattress. Can you imagine growing up in a small home, a dad, a mom and seven children in there? Can you imagine that that's how Christ grew up with that many people in the home here in mark six and thirty three here's what the Bible says. It gives us at least six siblings of Christ, mark chapter number six and verse number three says in uh, says is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James? There's one half brother, and Joseph. There's two, and of Judah there's three, and Simon. That's four half brothers. And then the Bible says, and are not his sisters here with us? That in Im- that implies at least two half sisters that he had, and so that makes six. You count Joseph, Mary, then Jesus. That's nine. Nine children. You can go to Matthew chapter number thirteen, verses fifty-five and fifty-six. And you'll find it will bear out the same. There were nine, at least nine in his family. Two of his half-brothers, of course, we don't believe that Christ's siblings believed he was who he was, um, didn't believe his claims until after his resurrection. James being a model of that. You remember 1 Corinthians 15 lets us know that James saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead, and he believed on him. And James penned one of the general epistles of our New Testament, the general epistle of James. And then there was Jude, his legal half-brother Jude, penned the little 25 or 26 verses that make up his epistle that warns us about apostasy before Christ comes, and how apostates slip into the church. They have crept in unawares, Jude would say. Our Lord was, his mother was a virgin when she conceived Christ. She was a virgin when she gave birth. But when the other siblings, when the other six, whenever they were birthed into the home, they came after the normal manner of conception and, and birth. But again, consider with me. I've thought on this. I've laughed about some of it just in my own personal life. Um, when I was growing up, can you, can you imagine? It was just me and my sister, my mom, and, and then Harry, my stepdad. I remember little sketches of whenever I was just a little fella. I remember the night my mama left my daddy in Norfolk, Virginia. I remember that. We was allowed to grab a stuffed animal, and then my mama had one bag with clothes for all three of us. We got in a taxi cab. My grandmother had sent the money. My daddy wouldn't give her the money for anything much, and so we got, it was raining that night. Got in a taxi cab, went to the Greyhound bus station. Seemed like it took forever to arrive in Tupelo, Mississippi. My all picked us up. We lived with her until... Uh, my mom and, and, and Harry and, and, until they got married. Then I was 16 when Melissa came along as a one born out of due time, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, my sister and I, we would fight. Now, some of you young people can't imagine this. We'd fight over the use of the telephone sometimes. You won't believe it. There was Once upon a time, there was no such thing as a cell phone. I still remember phone numbers. My grandmother's phone number is 489-4106. My great-grandparents, 489-1216. Our neighbor, the McCords, James Rule and Dorothy, their number, 489-6303. One of my buddies from high school, 6800. I still have those things stuck in my head. But ours was mounted to the wall in the kitchen right by the dining room table. kitchen and dining room was small, small area. But we'd fight over that thing at times. I won every time my mama wasn't there. Well, my mama was there. She'd tell me to get off the phone. Uh, Can you imagine seven siblings living in small quarters? Have any of you girls ever, I wonder if the Jenkins girls have ever argued over a hairdryer. I wonder if any of you children's ever argued over who got to watch what program on the TV set. Or who had use of the home computer. I was thinking, when I was thinking about it, and I don't want to get to telling a bunch of stories, but I was thinking about it before, and they're not here. I was going to mention it to them, but they're not here. They'll just have to hit me over the head when they do get back. Before Daryl Duffy, after he got his diagnosis, before he elected to have his surgery, I went by his place of business to pray with him, to just say hi and pray with him, and probably three or four weeks before his surgery, and we were in there, and then all of a sudden, here comes he and Cynthia's four grandchildren, Carson and Griffin, Hadley, and Celia Beth, and they were in there, and we were just talking and poking fun at one another. And I said, what have y'all been doing? And, and of course, they told me. And then here in a little bit, I said, look, uh, two things. I, I want to tell you I love you. Number two, I want to pray with you. Can I do that? And we just all bowed our head. And I prayed with those youngins. Then when I got through praying, little Hadley, she said, Brother Kevin, I'd like to pray. And I said, well, you pray. And little fella just flew into praying, touched me, coming and going. Well, then they got talking about their lives. I said, what y'all been up to? And got talking about their lives and Hagley evidently would tell on every one of them. She said, well, we were doing it. And she said, but now we get to fighting sometimes. I said, you get to fighting and then see the She said, yeah. She said, we do good for a little while. I said, then all of us. I said, we just go to fighting, you know. Well, I got tickled about all that. I was talking about my sister, the one that's up closest in age to me, and she can still whip a good man. i guarantee you that. If something breaks out, I do. We got them on both sides of our family. Yes. just said, uh, She'll whoop you and then drag you out and let the buzzers eat you. I mean, she just... The first time she ever fought back with me, Harry and Mama had one of these old record player units with the AMFM radio and the 8-track, you know, and had four channels on it. And we had to listen every Saturday. We had to listen to Eddie Arnold and Jim Reeves and all that old stuff. And I can sing Merle Haggard songs better than any country. I know all of them. I'd go in the store and hear that stuff, and I, it gets stuck in my head and I, it rattles on all day long. But I was just being mischievous with my sister, Tammy, and they had a set of earphones. You'd plug that thing in, well, they'd cut off the speakers. and But you could hear it in here. It had aggravated far out of her. It was around Christmas time. The only Christmas decoration my mama ever owned outside of a Christmas tree was a little old plastic snowman, about like that. She picked it up and frailed me right over the top of my head. And she really addled me. She really addled me. And I said all that and we all laugh about it because we've all experienced it, right? We've all played tug of war. We've all said that's mine, that's not yours. We've all said it's my turn, it's not your turn. But you know that never happened with Jesus Christ. Do you know he never held a grudge? He never felt anything but love for his siblings. If one of them would have talked about him, he didn't hang on to it. And hang on to it and let it fester. When we talk about the sinless perfection of Christ, even as a child, he was sinless and he was perfect. I don't know that we can fathom that with our little finite minds. But he lived a life, a perfect, sinless life. He was and he is what he's always been. and That is perfection and holiness and and purity. At the right hand of the fathers, we said last week, there's our man. He is the man. Luke calls him the son of man. He is God that robed himself in flesh and lived a sinless life and died a righteous man for the guilty so that he might represent us today at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. All God's people ought to say hallelujah right there. Thank God for that. He represents us fallen creatures Now, our Lord was the oldest among his siblings, right? Under Jewish culture, that would have placed a lot of responsibility upon him. The oldest child. And a lot of us can can relate to this growing up in our homes. The oldest is a bit of responsibility that's expected of the oldest to help with the younger ones. And he would have done so. When you read about, um, for example, our verse in Mark 6 and 33, and we'll read it again here shortly as we close the message About Jesus the carpenter, you know you don't read about, you read about Jesus, you read about Mary, you read about the siblings that are listed, but you don't read about Joseph. We don't know when Joseph died, but Joseph died before Christ's public ministry. Did he die when Christ was 15 years old? We don't know. Did he die when when Christ was 25 years of age? We don't know. The Bible is silent about it, so all we could do would be at best to offer an opinion or speculation we just really don't know just really don't don't know Um, but he would have felt the weight of caring for his mother even as he hung upon the cross of Calvary felt the weight of caring for his mother as a young man he would have felt the weight of caring for at least four half brothers and two half sisters there's honor In doing your part, there's honor in stepping up to the plate, to borrow a phrase from our society. The education of Jesus would have come from various sources and areas in life. You remember we we used three examples last week just to touch upon them. There would be instruction. There would be questions. Even in verse 46, we see him in the temple asking questions to the doctors. And then there would be observation. I was speaking with a dear friend of mine this morning by video chat. And we were talking about what we're preaching. And and I was talking to him about the parables of Christ that is to come in the life of Christ. In his teachings, he was very observant. He, he paid attention to the soil. He paid attention to birds. He paid attention to fish. He paid attention to trees. And he used all of that as parables. They're earthly windows whereby we look through to, uh, to magnify heavenly truth. His first instructions would have come in his mother's knee. It was common in these days for a Jewish mother to, while nursing and tending to her little ones, she would sing the psalms to them. And she would get that in, in their hearts. It was Joseph's responsibility. Our second message in this series, we talked about how that it was Joseph's responsibility, the man in the Jewish home, to teach, especially the males, the boys, scriptures and ancestral heritage and principles and laws, and teach the skill and the trade that he himself would work. At the age of six, as a Jewish boy, he would be sent to the synagogue Uh, from six to ten. He would have to attend. It would be mandatory that he attend the house of the book. And while attending there, there would be teachers of the law and teachers of the Old Testament Scripture. And what they would do is much like what you all have done around here with, um, with the Bible drills. They would drill the children. They would work memorization with the children. They would rehearse it and they would rehearse it and they would rehearse it particularly the first five books of the Bible which is referred to as the writings or the books of uh, Moses. At the age of 12 a little Jewish boy would become he would become a a son of the law. It's where uh, the ceremony for the bar mitzvah comes from and of course that would develop later on after the life of Christ. Of course. But at the age of 12, a Jewish boy, he would, he'd be robed in the garments of a man. And in essence, what that meant was that, that mom and dad, if, if, if a little boy up to age 12, if he, made a, if he did something wrong, if he stole something, if he said something out of the way, uh, the community would look to the father and look to the mother. But once he reached the age of 12, he's now responsible. He's old enough now to know better. He's responsible to stand on his own. And a little Jewish boy was called a son of the law now. And he would be regarded uh, as such. As a matter of fact, the Jewish people consider that the age of responsibility. I have, not many times, but I have across the years um, been approached by uh, folk in Baptist churches in revivals or whatever, and somebody would say to me, so you know I believe that the age of 12 is the age of accountability. I never have agreed with that. I wonder if that's not where that's birthed from, this being a son of the law at the age of 12, responsible for his own actions and decisions. You don't know when a time of accountability is in a kid's life. As good a preacher as I know anywhere, you can't shake him on it. He says he was saved when he was five years old before turning six, and that he can remember being brought to a place of conviction under heavy conviction and crying out unto God, as good a preacher as you can sit and listen to. I've heard some men's testimony of where they committed crimes and wound up in jail or in a penitentiary somewhere, and they heard the gospel for the first time and eventually was saved because of it. We don't know when a time of accountability is for a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl. And let me say this, we'll move on to, our, uh, to two, the two remaining verses I want to cover this morning. We'll be brief with both of them. As far as formal education was, Christ had none. And what I'm saying when I say that is, outside the normal education a Jewish child would have had in those days, he never went to a university, never went to a seminary. The Apostle Paul, when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, uh, was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he sat at the feet of a very touted and respected leader by the name of Gamaliel. Christ never had that. He taught himself. He was self-taught in the Word. not that amazing? Do you know back, uh, I can remember Brother R.J. Wilman, Brother Doug Jones, I can remember sitting at Russell's Beef House with them on a number of occasions. They would look at us young men and they would say to us, you men, the way that you're learning Scripture, stay with it. You're self-taught, but stay with it. I know what that means. And there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, I only read two verses out of Psalm 119 where the Bible says in Christ would fit this bill for sure. Psalm 119, verses 99 and 100 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. Do you know a man, when it comes to ministry, while I'm right here, he'll get out of the ministry what he puts into it. That doesn't mean that there'll be a lot of fanfare perhaps or a great following, but as far as your depth in the Scriptures, if we take care of the depth and our faithful walk with Him, God takes care of the width of it. I've been privileged to preach a number of places, never dreamed of it. Matter of fact, this past fall, I said to my wife on two or three different occasions, calling after a service somewhere, I don't know how I wind up in some of the places I wind up in. God's just been graceful. goes back to that grace. Give yourself to the Lord. Let him use you as he sees fit. Be a witness for him wherever you are in life. Now, I can mention two or three other things. I will mention this. The common language that Christ would have spoken would have been Aramaic, although we know from his quotations that he was very familiar with Hebrew and very familiar with Greek as well. Notice not only Jesus' life in Nazareth, and that was a bit informative but let me, let me say something about Jesus, the young man. Luke 2 and 52. Now, this is after the recording of his experience at the age of 12 in the temple. That closed at verse number 51. And then Luke's going to just summarize his life from age 12 to age 30 when he will begin his ministry. And he writes in verse number 52 of Luke 2, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so he increased, the Bible says here, in wisdom. That is, in mental ability. increased intellectually. The Bible says not only in wisdom, but in stature. That is, physical growth. Some of us got a good smile out of a picture. We took uh, our old-fashioned day out here in the fellowship hall. It wasn't just a few years ago. Colby was on one side of me, and Jamie was on the other side of me. I could have put my hand on their heads like this. Now I would have to do it like this. We were talking about that picture just a few years ago. You see, what they've done is they've grown in stature, not only up but out and filling out. They're becoming young men in their own right. And then he says, and in favor with God, that's spiritual development, and in favor with man, that is social development. And right along that same line of thought, he was a carpenter. He was in business. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine clients coming to Jesus And saying, I need a table and a chair, set of chairs for my daughter who is soon to be wed. And Jesus crafting that. He had good relations with people. He was approachable. During our Lord's first twelve years, we're told in verse number 40 that he grew. It has nothing to do with the will of a child. It's something that happens naturally. But watch this. In verse number 52, the Bible says, And Jesus increased. That word increase comes from a Greek word that means to chop his way forward. To chop his way forward, to make his own way. At the age of 12, when he became known legally as a son of the law, Jesus was responsible to chop his way forward. He was responsible to listen and to pay attention and follow the law. He's responsible in his walk before the Lord. His life became his responsibility. He chopped his way forward mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially. Isn't that amazing? He did that. I don't care where you've been in life. We were sharing with our kids. um, It's been weeks ago now. Um, Subject come up of pain. I said, you, you have no idea what pain is. And, and I rehearsed some of what my wife has been through, just a little of what, I don't know anything like she knows. And I, we told them, we both told them things they'd never heard. And before we got through, everybody had tears pouring off their face. I said, you never heard any of this, have you? No, Daddy, weep. no. And that gal ripped her heart out. It was just through a shower of tears, talking about the pain she grew up with. Do you know what she could have been if she were worldly minded and self centered? She could be a, a bitter woman. I know people hadn't been through near what she's been through as a child, and they're bitter. And mama didn't change a diaper at three o'clock one Saturday afternoon when they were three or whatever. You understand what I'm saying? That's just Oprah Winfrey. Mentality. Do you know that it is incumbent upon you to lace your boots up as a child of God and get up and keep your eyes on Jesus? It's incumbent upon you to encourage yourself in the Lord. It ain't my responsibility. It ain't the deacons of this church's responsibility. It ain't the song leader's responsibility. That's on you. You say, well, I wish my daddy would have. Well, I wish mine would have too. But I'm not living there. God in his wisdom and providence knew the route my life would take before I ever arrived. He's still God. And I have learned in in all the pain and and the agony that we have been through individually and then as a family, some of the things that we have lived through has been with purpose. I get calls. You had not heard this in a long time. But the majority of calls I get are from people who are hurting. And I'm still pulling out of those old wells. Don't tell me God don't know what's... You get bitter, that's, that's on you, sweetheart. That ain't God's fault. That's your fault. Though, because you're selfish. If a Jewish boy and a Jewish girl were expected to put their boots on, Sandals, of course, in those days. And live. And you can do the same thing. Life isn't fair. Oftentimes, life hurts. But a young man, back in those days, when Joseph and and Mary would have married, they would have been teenagers. Joseph knew his trade. He could earn a living. Mary could make a home. During the espousal period, that one year that they were separated from one another, he's working on a dwelling to put her, to bring her to, and so that they can build a life together and a family together. She's gathering items to move into that home with. Out at um, Silver Chapel Baptist Church, where my good friend, Brother Thacker, uh, pastors, Jonathan Thacker pastors, the first year I preached a revival out there, and, and I love that brother and love his family and love that church. First time I preached a revival, there's an elder couple the older brothers with the Lord now, and, but when I first met them, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, the gentleman and his wife had been married for 70 years. They were teenagers in the middle teen years when they married. Well, I learned that on Sunday morning, then on Sunday night here, they come through the foyer, and it was cold, they were trying to get through the door, and And uh, the elder brother, he's had a sweet disposition. He's coming through the door, and he gets to talking to Brother Ricky Fields and Brother Jonathan Thacker and the dear sister. She comes on in, and they got talking about how long they'd been married. Evidently, they'd recently celebrated that. I think it was 70 years. And I said, "Uh, probably, when you got married, I said, probably. He could work a trade or make a crop or get by somehow, and you probably, at least you had to make a home, didn't you? She got tickled. She said, no. Brother Kevin, I couldn't do anything. My mom and daddy spoiled me. He said he had to teach me how to cook and clean. But back in these days, you would have left home already knowing that. Look, if you will, at Mark 6 and verse number 3. You've been patient this morning as you always are. Talking about the silent years of Christ's life. There's Jesus, the carpenter. Mark 6 and 3. Mark 6, 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. I've told you in the second message again, when referring to Joseph, um, a life yielded for Christ. Uh, Joseph used a hammer. He would have used carving knives, a saw, and an adze. So it is with Christ. Jesus, I mentioned him having clients. He would have built tables and chairs, doors, yokes for oxen, handles for plows and other items as was requested. And again, I just imagine, not to be redundant, but I do want to visit that again. I just imagine everything he built was perfect. Jesus' ministry lasted three years. His labor at the workbench, his toil, lasted 18 years. He worked in obscurity three times, or excuse me, six times longer than he preached. It gives dignity, does it not? The fact that he worked like the common man gives dignity to work, to sweat on the brow, to a tired body at the end of the day. I've met many through the years that have felt their lives to be very insignificant. Insignificant. Go to a factory 40 hours, 50 hours a week. Work with their hands in a shop somewhere 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Teach in a classroom five days a week. Come home and work on homework and various things. Labor in the home, raising kids. Jesus dignifies what he left for Adam and his race by earning our living by the sweat of our brow. And I want to say five or six things. I jotted these down this morning before I left my desk. I want to say a word about labor and work, and I'm done. I'm done. But you know that labor, work itself, it allows you the opportunity to provide an income for you and your household. And there are items in the book of Proverbs that lends itself and other places in scripture that lends itself to your labor gives you an opportunity if you work for the public or work for yourself to be able to help to provide what Brother Greg sang about this morning, a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food for your family. You can give through your church. Do you know that work builds character? It takes character to get up every time, on time, be at work on time. It used to be that uh, in my generation, we wanted a job. We wanted to buy a vehicle. We wanted to get out of our mother and father's house, not to cut up. Well, I mean, we wanted to pay our way. We wanted to make our way. We didn't want a handout. It seems to be being lost in our day. I mean, you can't divorce kids from a cell phone. They're addicted to the doggone things. Our video games. I don't understand that. Work, labor, it allows you to build a testimony. Build a testimony through your sacrifice and your consistency. It will one day allow your children to rise up after you're dead and gone and call you blessed. My daddy, after I've worked all these years now, rest his soul, my daddy, maybe you'll say, I understand a little bit better now what he did for me. My mama, whether it be at a children's clinic tending to babies that you love or as a hospice nurse or at First Choice Bank or building houses or for the power company. Your labor is not in vain. Old brother David Miller said long ago, I'll never will forget the impression made upon me. He said... I grew up in a sharecropper's home. And he said my mama would take me and my siblings and put us under the shade tree. And she'd get a pick sack and said she'd work. She'd do what she could to help my daddy put food on the table. He said food was scarce. And he said, I remember distinctly a day. Said, she said we were barefoot and my mama went to the field barefoot and said she cut her foot, laid it wide open on a sardine can and said I could tell the way my mom... Uh, Grimaced all day long. She was in pain, but said she took an old rag and wrapped her foot and kept dragging that pick sack in the hot sun. Work and labor gives you an opportunity to live your life consistently, consistently for Christ. How many of us have said, "I want another job"? I remember working at Action Industries. I got—I I, I did that as a pastor. And I'd get through an hour to an hour and a half quicker than the next guy behind me would. Wherever he, whichever line he's worked on. And I cleaned my station up, set it up for the next day, got my Bible down, and got ready for Wednesday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night. And wound up pastoring, you might say, another church at Action while I was pastoring that nowhere in Union County. But I've heard people say, and I, I remember, I used to say it, these old factories are right next door to hell. You know what that gives you an opportunity to do? To let your light so shine before men. Lastly, I tell you what work and labor do to give you an opportunity to get up and be thankful that God has abled you enough that you can earn a wage. Work is not a curse; it's a blessing. I'll tell you something else: it is, it's a commandment. It's commanded in Scripture that the servant. Be obedient to his master. In other words, as you hire in, you hired it, you asked for the job. Bear Christian testimony before those that you work before. Let's stand.